Welcome to Open Matters, an interview series designed to explore the intersection of open source and open standards with folks in our industry. I'm your host, Guy Martin, the Executive Director of Oasis Open. You know, we've covered cybersecurity before on the show, but today I wanted to dive even deeper into the concepts of intersectional risk, trust, and transparency as they relate to the cybersecurity landscape. Specifically, how much is riding on us getting cybersecurity right, and what steps should we be taking uh, to get just beyond talking about this and actually start making significant progress? Joining me today is Josh Corman, who's had a distinguished career in cybersecurity with his most recent post being the chief strategist for the CISA COVID task force. Josh, thanks for joining us on the show. And if our pre-show briefing was any indication, I think we're in for a fascinating conversation. I'm really happy to be here. Awesome, thanks. So to start off, can you give our viewers and listeners a quick overview of the concept of intersectional risk and its relationship to the larger cybersecurity puzzle? Yeah. Wow. Um, term I take for granted every day now, but um, I usually have to unpack it a little bit. So backing up, in addition to my you know, day jobs, I also about uh, almost nine years ago started a group of volunteer hackers trying to save lives through security research called IamTheCavalry.org. It was in recognition that the cavalry isn't coming, mm -hmm. uh, that no one was going to save us on issues where I had deep concern about wherever bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. So sometimes I call it cyber safety, but my general belief, even before I am the cavalry, my rugged software manifesto is that if you zoom out, our dependence on connected technology is growing faster than our ability to secure it. And this includes areas affecting public safety, national security, economic security, you know, uh, human life at scale. And when I was first raising this, I think people viewed this as maybe a privacy issue. Like, you know, I might lose my credit card. I might lose some healthcare info. Um, but I meant this is going to affect, increasingly affect public safety, human life at scale. And if you situate ourselves over the last 18 months, I just finished up that public service at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency as an emergency hire for the pandemic. Um, Outside the scope of just the hospitals, if you look at critical infrastructure, the things, the lifeline services that society depends upon, the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we have had successful cyber attacks on the water we drink, the food we put on our table, the oil and gas that fuel our cars and our homes, the schools our kids go to, the timely availability of patient care during a pandemic with, with life and death consequences. The municipalities who run our towns and our cities, the federal agencies charged with national security secrets and, and so on. Stuff's on fire. And part of the reason we're allowing packets from the Internet to affect the functioning of critical infrastructure is because we want the promise of connectivity and we haven't really factored in the peril. So we want to balance the promise and the peril of connected digital infrastructure. At the moment, uh, we're prone where prey and predators have increasingly taken notice. So when I talk about intersectional risk, you know, I was brought into the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, but we very realized, uh, very quickly realized that on a pandemic, it's such a massively multidisciplinary set of problems that we assembled a massively multidisciplinary team. Some of these emergency hires, including infectious disease experts, physicians, supply chain experts, IT, OT or operational technology and industrial control systems experts, 
hackers with mohawks. We had a really <laughs> diverse team of skills. And just like forming the Avengers, you needed everybody's superpowers working together to, to identify and buy down risk. So sometimes this was uh, a cybersecurity exposure for a small, unguarded supply chain uh, manufacturer, biomanufacturer for the vaccines themselves so we can get people saved from the pandemic. Sometimes this was us identifying insufficient dry ice to keep cold things cold uh, throughout the cold chain and cold storage for Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, so this intersectional risk concept is that you have to look at the interconnectedness and what are the constraints that can lead to adverse uh, impacts and outcomes for the public. And that requires us to understand uh, elective attack surface, elective exposure, elective complexity, where we have information, where we're blind. And things that I think a lot of cybersecurity and software people take for granted have actually contributed in material ways to disruptions of lifeline services and even to the loss of life. Right. You know, it, it strikes me as you as you talk about this that yeah, you're right that that I think software people and I count myself still as a software engineer don't always think about the larger consequences of the systems that we build and I know there's been a lot of talk around sort of the computer ethics piece of this, but you know, I, you you listed some examples, but are there things that software developers should really be thinking about that, hey, what are the potential life and death consequences of this thing that I'm writing? Because you may think you're writing, you know, there's something for a cloud service and that can't possibly affect, you know, a life or death situation, but it ends up through the interconnectedness you mentioned ends up becoming an issue. So how do we, how do you think we educate, you know, software and standards professionals about the consequences that, that can come from the work that they're doing? It's it's no single thing. And years and years and years ago, when I was looking at the Agile Manifesto, now over 20 years old, um, I was ranting a bit because I, I read it and I could see how transformative it, it was for the profession and how it, it created a value set and a creed almost like a Hippocratic Oath. Mm-hmm. But it was missing any sort of acknowledgement of risk or attackers or adversaries or consequences. So um Some colleagues and I rewrote a rugged software manifesto. It's very short, but it has lines in it like, I recognize my code will be attacked by talented and persistent adversaries who threaten our physical, economic, and national security. There's a line in there for the developer truths of, I recognize my code will um, be used in ways it was not designed for longer than intended, et cetera, et cetera. So... I think what's been missing is like Simon Sinek says, start with why we don't really have a clear pathos or uh, a creed or an ethic for software developers. Um, mm-hmm. In one of my co-authors, David Rice, we talk about sometimes we refer to software development as engineering, right? Software engineering architectures. But sometimes we think about it more creatively, like it's an art. Mm-hmm. And ultimately what we came down to is it's art with engineering consequences. Um, wow. And okay. we haven't really um, resolve that. The closest thing I could find to a pathos, you know, in Silicon Valley was Reed Hoffman saying, if you're not embarrassed by your product the day you shipped it, you waited too long or <laughs> Zuckerberg go fast and break things, which might include, you know, democracies. And it might include, you know, an attitude of, well, minimum viable product may be okay for low consequence software, but it, it's not okay when you're talking about medical devices or, oil and gas pipelines or water treatment facilities. 
and ultimately, I think that the the trust we place upon uh, digital infrastructure should be proportional to how trustworthy and transparent that infrastructure is, and to the consequences uh, we will incur if that trust is misplaced. So we have placed our dependence much faster, as I say, uh, than our ability to depend upon it. And I think that's revealing itself. And we're going to have to start with understanding the awesome responsibility that comes with being a creator of digital infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a fantastic answer. I think it's going to be interesting. I think from the educational standpoint, because all of those things make sense hearing you talk about it. And as someone who's read the agile manifesto, now I've got to go read this because I think it's fantastic getting software developers and I think more, even more importantly, decision makers and policy makers to read these things, understand these things, internalize these things is going to be kind of a continuing challenge. And do you see, I mean, obviously you were, you were hired for the, for the, uh, the pandemic effort. Do you think the pandemic is actually finally causing us to maybe all of us professionals to maybe look at this in a different light and, and think about, like you said, the consequences and the, and the amount of trust we have to place dependent upon, you know, you know, kind of where we are. I, I think uh, light dawns gradually over the whole, right? It's not going to okay. be a single moment where everyone gets it. Um, the reason I spoke to values first is like, we could tell you how to fix things, you know, what to fix mm-hmm. and how to fix it. But unless there's a, a motivation to do so, incentives, carrot right. sticks, et cetera, or ideally intrinsic, like I want my code to be you know tested. I want it to hold up against adversaries. I want it to be trustworthy. Right. Um, then all the instruction in the world won't matter. So we've also been working since then in through I am the cavalry and other things on trying to bend public policy and incentives. Uh, for years, I've been saying transparency is coming. I know we're going to get to SBOM and software bill and materials, but you know, I, I, I take a lot of these fire prevention, hygiene, building codes mm-hmm. for building code uh, to, uh, to quote somebody from DHS a long time ago. Um, I steal a lot of these concepts from Deming. Like, look at all the Agile and DevOps and CICD and Six Sigma and TQM. Like, software world and IT has liberally uh, been inspired by and stolen from Deming and Toyota supply chains from the 40s. The one thing we never took was supply chain principles. Um, he had three little principles that didn't, he didn't do them to make less hackable cars or safer cars, he did them to make more profitable manufacturing. And now it's baked into almost every manufacturing of goods or food or technology. And essentially the extractive principles I've been screaming about for, I think eight or nine years now is you should use fewer and better suppliers of parts. You should use the highest quality supply from those high quality suppliers. And you should track which parts go where throughout manufacturing so that when something goes wrong, you have a targeted prompt and agile response. And these were done to save millions of dollars to, to have higher quality cars. And they were some of these principles baked into those overall systems of thought and process made them the one of the most dominant and profitable automakers in the world for 40 years. Right. Uh, it saved the Japanese economy, those principles. Hmm. So I'm trying to take proven supply chain techniques and apply them to modern software development because we too have a supply chain. We just don't treat it like one. Right. Yeah. So exactly. But to your uh, I, I mean, about- pandemic, I would say some people needed proof, right? I Mm. still think we looked at this as a privacy issue in healthcare. I said, I love my privacy. I'd like to be alive to enjoy it. (laughs) But through my work in the pandemic, we now have the first statistical proof that ransom attacks can lead to loss of life. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that while it's really bad and heavy news, and while we're seeing disruptions to food supply and oil and gas and water treatment facilities, that maybe we're more grounded and more uh, resolved to to finally do the uncomfortable things that we've been putting off. So the good news is we've identified some methods and now we have more political will than ever before. I think everyone's really, really tired right. and exhausted from the pandemic. But in the aftermath, I'm hoping we can finally roll up our sleeves and balance the trust and trustworthiness. Cool. Well, I mean, you, it's a perfect segue. You mentioned software build materials, SBOM, right? And I know uh, all of our listeners probably have either heard this term in news articles or, you know, because it was included in the, the recent presidential executive order, which I know you had a little bit of a hand in helping with, but you talked about SBOM isn't new as a concept, right? It's based no. in, it's based in Deming. It's based in, in all of these things. Um, you know, in our pre-show brief, you 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 talked a little bit about the five stages of SBOM grief. I'd love for you to kind of dive into that for our listeners to give them some perspective of why this is important and 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 how we can utilize the five stages of grief maybe to get to a better spot. Yeah, I'll reframe it a, a little bit, um, especially if people haven't heard what SBOM is. So SBOM is software bill of materials, um, which just builds on the idea of a bill of materials, which is a, a staple and treasured aspect of almost every other part of manufacturing. Um, the idea is it's a list of ingredients of all the third-party open source uh, um, components used in the construction, an dependency graph, ideally, of these. So it, there's uh, they admit to degrees of specificity, but um, for years I've been trying to push this. There was a bill in 2014, Cyber Supply Chain Management and Transparency Act. Uh, industry hated it and tried to kill <laughs> it with fire. Uh, I later introduced it in a congressional task force report for healthcare industry cybersecurity after a single Java flaw and a single JBoss library and a single device in a hospital took out Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital for a week. They had to divert ambulances to other facilities, cancel surgeries, move critical care patients. Uh, And Congress liked that suggestion. I said we should have a machine readable uh, list of ingredients of software for medical equipment. And upon seeing that, industry freaked out a second time and said, wait a second, if the FDA comes up with minimum requirements for an SBOM for medical devices, we might have an accidental de facto standard for everything that's (laughs) ill-fitting. So there was a grand bargain and commerce department assigned it to the national uh, NTIA. Uh, Under Alan Friedman, we completed a three-year voluntary best practice set of working groups where I co-chaired some of those. And the idea was if we can come up with a generic best practices Would the FDA use it. And they said, yes. Um, so we kind of harmonized, but in parallel, you know, there were more and more and more cases of why this was necessary. There was an urgent 11 flaw that people thought was in one piece of software. It was actually much deeper in the supply chain affecting more real-time operating systems. There was a REPL 20. There were other ones that just kept reminding us that this idea is overdue. And ultimately, after the solar winds attacks and others, which arguably maybe wouldn't even been benefited from an SBOM, the notion that we need much more trustworthy, transparent digital infrastructure kind of came to the fore. And now this thing's crossing the chasm because for any federal procurement, uh, critical software needs to have a machine-readable SBOM. The NTA process came up with the minimum defined SBOM. And these are things that are readily available and can be thrown off by any modern software build chain, uh, you know, it could be a free byproduct of your Jenkins, you know, uh, just by building software at build time. 
Um, it's harder for older stuff. So to get to your question though, uh, whether it's five stages or not, I, I, <laughs> I really need to write a whole talk on this, but there's a, a repeatable process most people go through. Um, I also like to quote, quote William Gibson here that the future is here already. It's just not evenly distributed. S-bombs have been used for many, many years in financial services and other software companies for the internal software they write it because it's just so efficient. They save millions of dollars in unplanned, unscheduled rework and they've cut down elective complexity and the performance of the microservices are better. So it's just the right thing to do. I think what's new is the idea of exchanging them across legal and boundaries mm -hmm. and uh, organizational boundaries. And that required us to have standards and open standards and uh, some sort of common denominator. Um, so with those, I think what's happening is um, these new attacks, including the most recent Log4j, have really just punctuated. It's time, it's overtime, and whether it's for everyone or it's really just becomes a market requirement, the federal government saying they want to receive these um, means that if you want to sell there, you're probably going to do something. And we're going to go from terrible, incomplete S-bombs to slightly less incomplete ones to, you know, very reliable ones, but there's going to be a growth curve. The yeah. way I put it, if you're a Game of Thrones fan is just like they say, winter is coming. I've been saying transparency is coming. And organizations that were afraid of it initially have had many years to kind of clean up some of their sins. Right. But the oversimplified journey is usually it's like, I have no idea what's in our software. It'd be too hard to find out. And they see there's lots of readily available tools to fingerprint or build these. And then they have a shock and awe where they're like, oh my God, that's in there. I had no idea how much open source I used or how old and how vulnerable it is. And then they want to hide it. Right. And then, right. so then they try to say, oh, we should only do one hop or, oh, this is proprietary or, oh, doesn't this create a roadmap for the attackers and all these normal good faith, um, mostly good faith, some, some not, um, <laughs> objections and they want to hide, um, because transparency reveals that we all have some skeletons in our closets. Um, but then there's some sort of acceptance phase where you realize, all right, everybody poops. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> um, we didn't know better, but you're going to be less judged on the prior uh, supply chain spring cleanup you need to do and more on what you do about it going forward. And people tend to find it's an 80-20 rule. Most of the old you know, obsolete libraries just rolling forward to a new, fresher API compatible version is fine or very minimal effort. And some of them are gonna be really, really hard. Refactored APIs, rewrites, maybe you're gonna to have to live with it for until that product is end of life. And that's the acceptance kind of phase and you roll up your sleeves, you do the hard work and just make commitments and your commitments will be judged uh, to others in similar positions in your performance and your customer demand. Higher assurance software is gonna need more rigor. Lower assurance might get more forgiveness, but we're gonna go from opacity to some transparency with some ugly truths just uh, to the point where I think when people really fully internalize this, we're going to realize why are we using so much code? You know, why do we have so many elective libraries? Why are we using unmaintained libraries instead of better maintained libraries? Why do we need a kitchen sink project? that's a monolith when we can use something more strack and better maintained. And I think the eventual truth is we'll end up where Deming started of fewer and better open source projects that are uh, using the freshest of ingredients from those fewer open source ones. So maintaining a level of hygiene and vigilance. And then when something goes wrong, prompt an agile identification. You can tell in minutes or hours instead of days or weeks, which of your hospital equipment might be using that vulnerable log for J. 
So it really doesn't eliminate software risk. No one thinks we're ever going to have perfect code, but the ability to have impact analysis of am I affected, where am I affected, is going to be fantastic in the transition. But ultimately, what we're going to end up with is fewer total lines of code from fewer projects, from better projects, and a little bit of a thinning of the herd for just using anything and everything because it becomes easier and more elegant to have less complexity. Right. I mean, and I think that the interesting thing in all of that that you mentioned, you know, we talked about the carrot and the stick element of this, mm-hmm. but the a, a huge carrot that you you sort of it didn't you didn't bury the lead, but it was it was in there is that this actually is going to make when we get to this point that you're talking about, it's going to make uh, things more profitable. It's going to make <laughs> businesses able to actually do more yeah. with, as you said, less code that 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 is is ultimately better. So I think that's the thing I don't want uh, the industry to sort of lose track of is, yes, you know, it's it's grief right now. And like you said, the, the different stages of where people are at. But, you know, if we can finally get to, to to the to a point that you're talking about, in the end, it actually makes business sense to do this. Yeah. And I think that's where I see a lot of things happening that we don't always, we, we, we sometimes come at it from the doom and gloom, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, there's obviously huge issues here, but reframing it sometimes as a, this is actually going to make you more profitable, you know, business person. I think sometimes having that discussion is a little bit easier. Yeah, but I mean, just think about how we both just said that. Um, we, we looked at this as the, the business efficiency, quality improvements, efficient, you know, money savings on unplanned unscheduled work as a, like a gratis or a bonus. Most of the adoption of things like SBOM, I was the CTO at Sonatype for years. I didn't sell this as a security thing. I said, how'd you like to reclaim unplanned, unscheduled work and developer productivity? And for mm-hmm. large organizations, financial services, we would save them several million dollars a year in unplanned, unscheduled work and downtime in faster meantime to identify and recover for their service delivery. Um, one of the CISOs I worked with, um, he made a bet with his, uh, engineering leadership and he said, Hey, we're using like 16 different logging frameworks. Can we just pick the top three? <laughs> like it can't be, you know, efficient, a different one. One of the largest software producers in the world in financial services, they were using like 81 versions of spring concurrently. Wow. They're only 86 wow. at the time. So the argument was, what if we use just fewer total uh, versions? We called that, uh, I think, it, I can't remember the phrase we used for that surface area or something like that. And then for a different one, we said, do you need every logging framework or can we just standardize on for new projects? Here's the three we care about. And that way you could pick up a developer from this project and move them to that project much more easily. Uh, he bet he can get a 15% developer productivity boost. He ended up having a 30% developer wow. productivity boost. And I said, how did you pick 15%? And he said, I made it up, but <laughs> But these are real. These are the central reasons people adopted Deming principles. The security was a collateral benefit. I didn't want to go around hitting people with the security stick. I just think mm-hmm. that because of the security failures, it's dominated the SBOM conversation. But businesses exist to be on time on budget, you know, sometimes with acceptable risk. I think there's many good reasons to do this beyond um, the security benefits. Right. Agreed. Agreed. So shifting gears a little bit, uh, and I usually ask this of most of our guests, what role do you believe organizations like Oasis and others play in this, not in the cybersecurity space, but in the the making businesses more efficient space, especially because there's, a, as you noted, a huge diversity of stakeholders involved? Well, you know, uh, back to that line of the future is here already, just not evenly distributed. 
huge swaths of this space um, wait until there's standards and adoption and, and opener change. Uh, so the role of these um, become very important for scale adoption and uh, consistency. Uh, we have some benefits in that we kept these SBOM uh, specifications quite elegant and quite simple. Uh, there's a few standard, uh, there's a few um, uh, formats that support the minimum viable SBOM. Um, uh, most notably is uh, SPDX, um, Cyclone DX, and to some extent SWID. They're translatable amongst each other. So we have we have some good fortune and good luck here that we're not asking for a lot of things. Um, but as these open systems and open standards become more part of a larger ecosystem, it's important that they can interplay with other things as well. So one of the branches and sequels to SBOM, and I usually articulate this in three columns, there's the SBOM, which is just the facts, just what's in it, right? The ingredients, the project name, the version, some hash, you know, there's, a, there's a minimum standard. People usually jump to column two or three prematurely and they say, well, if you know what's in it, you can map that to potentially exploitable vulnerabilities. And the middle column is kind of dangerous because maybe out of 100 known vulnerabilities, only 10% of them are exploitable. So people call them false positive and they say, no, they're potentially exploitable. You can remediate them by rolling forward to the least vulnerable version or do it at whatever risk-based timeline you want. But column three is where it gets interesting, which is sometimes called VEX. I still hate the name and the, the acronym, <laughs> but it's uh, vulnerability exploitability exchange. And it's when the vendor or the software provider makes an attestation that says, for these potentially exploitable vulnerabilities, we are not vulnerable or a patch is coming here. So that VEX thing is now a lot of the people that want it sooner than the rest of the market is ready for. Um, they're using one of the OASIS standards, uh, CSAF. Um, mm -hmm. So these types of things only make adoption and interplay more robust and it plugs it in. So this is that what common security advisory framework, um, fairly new, but if you can also make uh, vulnerability attestations against an SBOM, great, more power to you. And there's other ones like DBOM is coming up. It's uh, essentially like think of it as the shipping manifest for provenance and chain of custody um, and other, other artifacts and build information, including but not limited to an SBOM. And there are other standards from other groups. Um, uh, MUD is manu manufacturer usage description. Uh, we can see that MUD <laughs> could maybe point uh, IoT device to a URL where they could fetch the SBOM. So there's a, there's a whole ecosystem that's going to have to come into play here and the investments that you and your, your colleagues make uh, make this less scary, more consistent and predictable for software providers, either from commercial or open source sectors. Cool. Cool. Thanks. So we're almost out of time here. Uh, I'd like to kind of end on a little bit of a looking forward piece mm. um, and and uh, give you an opportunity to both talk about what still keeps you up at night when you look into these issues of intersection risk and cybersecurity and and then also what you what you feel uh, is is potentially positive. Maybe end on a positive note of where, where you think we we've made some great strides and, and, and can make some in the future. Yeah, I always hate this question. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, I recently encountered someone who inverts it and says, uh, instead of what keeps you up at night, what gets you up in the morning? What gets you out of bed? And right. uh, we'll do a little both, I guess. I mean, what gets me out of bed in the morning is I want to save lives. Um, and I think um, 
you know, as the world increasingly depends on software and digital infrastructure, they increasingly depend on us, right? Those who produce right. software, those who do, you know, software security, risk management, and we have some evolution to make. Um, so whether I'm doing fire prevention and building codes like SBOM or software development lifecycle or encouraging the rise of the chief product security officer, or whether we're doing firefighting, like, you know, uh, successful hacks of hospitals during a pandemic contributing to loss of life. Uh, th those are the things that kind of keep me up at night and it, it's not theoretical. Um, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but there was a front page story about, um, a, um, a lawsuit for a loss of a baby after birth, um, in Alabama, the hospital had been ransomed and the family is suing because, uh, there were exchanges between doctors and nurses saying that if they had access to their imaging technology, they, they would have made different choices and the baby would have survived. Hmm. Um, so there, that's likely going to be case or precedent or settled that it's going to be hard to ignore now that, um, if we already know delays can affect mortality rates, uh, and cyber attacks can introduce delays and inefficiencies. So we knew this conceptually, but on top of that, my team at the CISA COVID task force, we published something on October 1st in a document about provide medical cares in critical condition. We were able to study the effects of ransomware on states hit hardest by ransom attacks during the pandemic. And in the same state with the same population adjusting for hospital type and size, we could see that hospitals hit by ransom in their towns were uh, hit these excess death stress levels faster and stayed there longer than their peer group. So we can quantify a loss of life uh, exacerbated by cyber disruption. And when you zoom out, some of these are phishing attacks or whatnot, but some of them are log4j flaws in medical devices. Some of them are hard-coded passwords that really shouldn't be there. Some of them are unnecessary elective attack surface or unsupported software and service to national critical functions. And we are upside down in our mortgage. So we talk mm -hmm. about our bridges and tunnels collapsing, our digital infrastructure is collapsing. So what concerns me is it's going to take years and years. Uh, the predators are here and stuff's on fire, but it's going to take years and years in political will and effort to make this trust we place on digital infrastructure more proportional to how trustworthy it is. The silver lining for me is that now that we've coming, we are coming to grips and reckoning with the consequences of this dependence on digital infrastructure, perhaps this is the Bill Gates trustworthy computing memo moment. Like what's the trustworthy mm -hmm. computing memo for critical infrastructure? And maybe you have to hit rock bottom and you gotta get sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah. Maybe we're there and maybe this can be the, the turning point uh, for us to get these things in a better balance. And as people are ready, uh, we have cheerful warriors <laughs> willing and able to help you get there faster. Cool. And, and I know you're one of them. Thanks so much for that, Josh. And, you know, thank you for joining me today. Uh, and as I predicted at the top, I think this has been a fascinating discussion, you know, not just diving into cybersecurity, but really, as you touched on the, the important societal ramifications of, of what's going on out there and the things that we depend on. Uh, you know, I really appreciate the work that you've put into this and the thinking you've put into it throughout your career. So, so thanks for sharing that with us today. Thank you. Awesome. So folks, if you want to learn more about our cybersecurity work or other OASIS projects, you can find us at oasis-open.org. And let's continue this conversation on Twitter. We're at OasisOpen. Once again, until next time, thanks everybody for listening.